Judd's Napa Valley Show, broadcasting live from the heart of the world's finest wine-growing region. So today, let's talk about beer. Yes, we're going to talk about beer and holograms and making guitars and all kinds of cool, interesting stuff with brewmaster Colin Kaminsky. Interesting guy, you're going to like hearing his story. In the meantime, let's get back to wine for just a moment. Come visit me at the family's winery, Judd's Hill, located at the south end of the Silverado Trail right here in Napa Valley. Love to show you a good time. Visiting information is at judshill.com. And as long as you're at the website, you can check out some wine-related poetry. You can check out some food and wine pairing recipes. And you can check out our fun videos. You can also check out our wine. And while you're checking out, as a special perk for being a listener, type in coupon code JNVS for Judd's Napa Valley Show. Put it in lowercase letters and get 15% off your entire wine order. Not too shabby. If you want a better deal, join our Judd's Hill Wine Club. It's free to join, and I guarantee you a good time. You're going to get our wines, you're going to get invitations to great events, and you're going to get all kinds of fun surprises, too. As I said, a guaranteed good time. Now, enjoy today's show. Judd's Napa Valley Show. Every episode, a veritable cornucopia of finkel fun. Get ready for another heapful of fascinating things to know from witty and intriguing people on Judd's Napa Valley Show. No stale script and no rehearsing, live from a Napa studio. You may be that intriguing person on Judd's Napa Valley Show. On Judd's Napa Valley Show. Judd's Napa, Judd's Napa Valley, Judd's Napa Valley Show. Welcome to one of the finest hours on 1440 KVON with our host, Judd. Have a bottle of Judd's Hill and everything will be fine. A bottle of white, a bottle of red, perhaps a bottle of rosé instead. Here's to our vendor and former KVYN DJ, Judd Fingelstein. <laughs> Good morning, Lauren, man. That was great. Top of the day, Judd. Happy new month. Happy new month. September 1st here. We're in the midst of harvest. It's a beautiful day in Napa Valley. We have a new intro. Did you uh, come up with that all yourself? You wrote that little poem? I did. But part of it I actually got from Billy Joel. Uh, well, sure. That's right. You appropriated, made it your own. It was lovely. Thank you for that introduction. You're quite welcome. What is happening in the world of Mr. Lauren Mole? Well, I probably didn't uh, mention this uh, last week, but uh, I got to, uh, I think it was back in July, I got to uh, participate in the Relay for Life event over here at the Napa Expo. Yeah, I don't think we talked about that. Let's hear about your experience. Uh, well, uh, it was because of we, we, ha- we know some people, or actually there's a little bit of history of cancer in, in our family. Mm. And so I was one of the lucky ones to actually participate in this event where I got to walk around, uh, f- around the track for an hour. And it's to raise money, raise awareness for... For cancer, cancer, yes, exactly. Yes, yeah, so if if you're living with cancer, you know, just just gotta be who you are. You gotta stand up and fight. Well, yeah, yeah. And for those that are too weak to stand up, it's nice that people are there to support them, like yourself. That's right. Thank you. You been doing any singing lately? Any acting? Got any auditions coming up? Any big parts? Any roles? Any theatrical releases? Uh, any turns on the stage? And, okay. Actually, ahead. no, not really. Oh, okay. <laughs> well, right on. You're always up to something, though. Whatever it is, it's always good. It's always positive, and that's what I appreciate about you. One of the many things I appreciate about... Uh, 
<clears throat> appreciate about Take your time, you. Judd. Yeah, thanks. I appreciate that, too. You stick with me, even when I can't speak properly. So, yep. yeah, okay. Yeah, well. well. Nice talking to you. Yep. <laughs> All right, later on. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, uh, so what's been going on with you, John? Anything going on over at the winery? The, yeah, sure. It's harvest time. It's September first here. It was our earliest harvest ever. The start of harvest. We took our first grapes July thirty first. Could not believe it. It wasn't much. It was only about a ton of some Sauvignon Blanc from way up Valley, where it's nice and hot. But July, the last day of July, we took some grapes, and now we're kind of rolling into it. We're not completely cranking, but it's it's happening. We're taking. We're taking grapes, and it's fun. It's exciting. It's it's uh, you know we gear up all year to do this, and here we are. It smells good. It feels good. It looks good. It's tasting good. It's exciting. That's happening. Let's see. Uh, next month in October, we are doing a very cool Judd's Hill Wine Club event. So those of you who are wine club members of ours, you know, listen up. And if you're not. Join, I say. <laughs> you know, why not? We'll show you a good time for sure. It's, it's the best in the valley. I'm, I can say that because I'm totally unbiased. Um, free to join. Lots of fun to be had. Wines, of course. But we are doing a wine dinner at the Magic Castle in Hollywood, California, the exclusive Magicians Club. I'm very excited about this. We've only got 10 spots at the table I think we may have announced this already, so I'm not sure if it's sold out already or not. But if you're listening and you're a wine club member or you'd like to be a wine club member, call the winery, 707-255-2332. Great. I have wonderful people walking by the glass saying they want to be wine club members. Come on by anytime. You're welcome. They're waving. I love it. This community is so tight. Uh, What is the number? 707-255-2332, extension 3. You talk to Cindy Friedman. She is our friendly and personable wine club director and she will get you all the information you want to know okay that's enough plugs let's talk to our guest shall we would you like to introduce our guest lauren why not judd all right in love with his beer many have fallen to recognize his brewing skill we should call city hall in with his pints growlers and kegs you can celebrate a baseball win after one sip of his brew, your face will show more than a small grin. Into his vats, given the chance, I'd be cannonballing. But enough of these rhymes. Let's talk to the man. Brewmaster Colin! Hey, Colin Kaminsky, how are you, man? Good morning. You are the... That was quite the introduction there. Oh, thanks, Lauren. Yeah, well, he is a professional. Uh, I see that. Yeah. <laughs> you are wearing a shirt right now. You, It says quality control, but your official title is a brewmaster, brewmaster. master brewer. Yeah, you know, when I started, uh, brewmaster was a traditional title. Uh, now more common is head brewer, same okay. job. And that's you that's at me. Downtown Joe's. Yeah, for 12 years. Here in Napa. Yeah. Congratulations. Thank it's you. Pretty cool. I, <laughs> it's, it's I enjoy your beer, so I'm excited that you're here today. We can actually talk about it. I think the, the uh, not the last time, but um, well, the last time I filled up a growler, I'll put it that way, um, was when they opened the uh, public dock here in Napa. Right. Remember this? Yeah. They had the big opening and the mayor was down there and all the big dignitaries and whatnot. And we did a little surprise raid on the dock with our wine pirate, Captain Wiley Raven, in his <laughs> wine barrel pirate ship. They didn't know he was coming. But part of the deal was he and his support crew needed beer. You got to keep a pirate's <laughs> thirst quenched with fine brew. And so I went into uh, downtown Joe's, got some growlers, and 
a kayak came ashore and then <laughs> then paddled it out to the to the uh, pirate and his crew out there and they they were high on life and your beer when they did the raid on the public talk. <laughs> That's fun. Huh? <laughs> yeah. Well, I'm really excited you're here. I got a note by the way. Your reputation um, precedes you and and uh, you're of great renown throughout the brewing community. I got a note from one of the Los Angeles area's preeminent brewing groups called Brewing Around Friends, aka Barf. <laughs> and said they'd like to. They're going to be tuning in today to hear nice. what you got to say. So, hello, bar <laughs> yeah. people. <laughs> you know the brewing uh, homebrew clubs are great at yeah. making up names. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good one. That's a great one. Well, let's talk about you. Well, like, let's let's go to the beginning. Where where do you come from? Did you grow up here in Napa? What I grew up in Lake Tahoe. I was oh. born and raised in Lake Tahoe. No kidding. Yep. Wow. Um, uh, moved uh, from Tahoe when I was 19 to mm-hmm. find some more culture. Moved to North Beach in San Francisco. Oh, yeah. So but you found it there. What was it you were, were looking for? You know, just more. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Uh, Lake Tahoe was really fun to grow up in three months in the summer and three months in the winter. Mm. But that left six months. So really, it was a little too cold to be outside. Yeah. But there was, it wasn't cold enough to have any fun winter activities. Uh, so, uh, so six months a year was really boring. And uh, as I got older, I wanted to learn more about the world. Mm-hmm. And uh, that meant I wanted to see theater. I wanted to see symphony. I wanted to to uh, kind of experience the big city life after growing up in such a small community. Yeah, I can relate to that. Having grown up in St. Helena, which is a great town, but, you know, when you're that age, you want more. So you get to San Francisco, and what grabbed you? What, what, uh, you know, it, um, what was your I'd, thing? I uh, started, uh, actually, uh, my roommate was uh, catering for a company, mm-hmm. and so I could work when I wanted and not. And uh, uh, it was just kind of on-call work and uh, paid the bills. So in the beginning, I did catering. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I had started riding motorcycles. And I like to take everything apart, always have. Yeah. And uh, so I was taking motorcycles apart and putting them back together, <laughs> which kind of turned into to working as a motorcycle mechanic. Okay, sure. Um, uh, but I kind of still kept uh, the catering stuff on weekends. Mm-hmm. It turned in at that point to more wedding cakes. Oh. Um, so my roommate and I did wedding cakes uh, for 10 years. No kidding, wow. And uh, yeah, every weekend we'd uh, put either one or two wedding cakes together for extra cash. <laughs> you know, it was in, in the 80s, so it was, uh, uh, money was hard to come by. It was, uh, it was uh, lean times for us. And, but you and, found a way to make it happen. Yeah, and an extra, you know, 300 bucks a weekend really made the difference. You know, I've been talking to folks about you doing a little reading, and I, I gather you're a very creative guy. I mean, I already, already knew that, and we're going to talk about some of the things you've done, but the wedding cake thing has never come up. That's... Yeah, you know, it's very it, it, industrious of you. It yeah. wasn't my name on it. I uh, so my job was I we did traditional torts. So yeah. uh, uh, split the yolks and the whites. Mm-hmm. You take out half the yolks, make meringue, and then fold all the ingredients into the meringue. Make it just lighter than meringue. Mm. So we had these beautiful light cakes that we would frost with whipped cream, not yeah. not traditional wedding frosting, yeah. and then we would decorate with the same flowers that the florist was using for the wedding. And, and I had to do the cakes, the crumb coats, and the fillings. And then all the decorating was my roommate. So it wasn't my name on it or anything. You know? <laughs> yeah, fun way to make a living. Yeah, that, that's very cool. You got a little reputation as a, as a cake maker. And then you, you got yourself into what came first. I know that you have you've built musical instruments. Well, You're yeah. into so uh, I got really interested. I got really interested in making guitars yeah. at that time. And I was... Uh, uh, I was li- I had moved from North Beach to Berkeley, mm-hmm. and um, uh, I w- had always played guitar. Guitar was the way to relax, to get stress out of my life. 
And so I'd played guitar, um, and I took a guitar to, a, to Ralph Novak, who was a, a, an inventor slash guitar maker, and, and asked him to fix a little problem. And he said, you know, I can make the sound a lot better. And I thought, oh. wow, you can make my guitar sound better? Okay, here, take it. You know, <laughs> let me know when I can pick it up. A week later, I go to pick it up, and it sounded amazingly better. And I'll bet you being the guy that takes things apart. Well, I had to figure out this? why, right? Yeah. I had to figure out why, which involved me building a ton of prototype guitars, modifying flea market guitars. It finally ended up in me building a guitar, mm-hmm. and which was a, a pretty mediocre piece of craftsmanship. <laughs> and and because I'd never really done anything with my hands like that, not oh. not, not, not that fine motor skill stuff. Oh, I see. So I uh, I found two apprenticeships, one with Irvin Samaji and one with Steve Klein, mm-hmm. um, two very famous guitar makers that had uh, world clients, and uh, started uh, building with them. Uh, Irvin Samaji wanted me to design tooling for him, which was my first experience building tooling. And uh, Steve Klein had me making the necks for the electric guitar side of his business, so he could focus on the acoustic guitar side. Huh. Got had lots of fun customers. You uh, must meet Steve a lot of Miller. characters. Oh, okay. So. Yeah, Steve Miller was great. I was in a hotel room in at a, a guitar show down in uh, Los Angeles, and this guy looks like a sixty-year-old bus driver, but nice button-down collar shirt, uh, nice press slacks, and he comes walking <laughs> in the room. Greetings from the Pacific Northwest, and we're sitting there with this bag of sushi, just exhausted from the day. And I look at Steve Plan. I said, "Steve, am I supposed to know who this is?" And he says, "Yeah, that's Steve Miller." <laughs> and I didn't talk to him for, he was in the room for a couple hours. I didn't talk to him. I didn't talk to him. And finally he noticed that I wasn't talking. And this so he came, he came over and sat next to me and spent about a half an hour with me. And it was just he and I in the corner of this hotel room told me a ton of stories about being at the Abbey Roads recording sessions with the Beatles. And Wow, really? Yeah. He was there? He was there. I never knew this about Steve. Well, this is another story for another time. We want to talk about <laughs> you, but that's, that's something I want to find out more about. So you found this life as a luthier? Yes, I was as a luthier. A, I, I did it for 10 years and a little more than 10 years. Uh, full, full-time day job. Mm-hmm. Did a lot of violin repair at Jordan Music. Um, but really, I, and I was working seven days a week at the time, just keep my mind busy. Three jobs, seven days a week. So yeah. one day was building curfing for Gibson from a subcontractor over hold in on, Sonoma. Hold on, hold on. Building curfing. It's the little bent wood strip that attaches the sides and the back together. Got it. And so we'd have to make about a mile and a half a day, and I did it one day a week. A mile and a half? And we'd start with these big boards and end up with these little tiny packages. I mean, just we were making about 150 gallons of sawdust a day. Wow. And uh, Kerfin Tom Peterson was just great at it. <laughs> and he did, and it was, but it was really boring, so he'd have me go over and run the, run the production side for one day a week. Well, cool, man. You are definitely a creator. You seem to gravitate towards jobs where you get to make things. I, I like things that blend art and science. Mm-hmm. And, and it, it does, doesn't seem to matter to me what it is as long as it requires both talents. And I'm kind of mediocre at both. But, I'm, <laughs> I'm, but because I can do both, I can succeed. And then right in the middle is where you excel, though. The, right, that's right. When they right. come together, as when they you come do together. in your current you know, job as a, as a brewer. Before we get to that... Let's talk about the holograms, too. I know that's a huge hobby of yours and to this day still, right? Yeah. You know, I, I study, I, I found out about holograms and found out about the math when I was young. I was about 19. I know nothing, so oh. feel free to fill me in. And Okay. And I, and I, I was in the Hollows Gallery, which was uh, at Haight and Ashbury mm-hmm. in San Francisco. And, and I'd, I'd known about the, the math previous, and, but I'd never seen art holograms. And I saw it, and I was really excited about it. Bought a book about it. 
And but the, a laser was about six thousand dollars, and you know, struggling guy, young guy. There was no way I was going to do it. So and there's not a rent a laser center. No, and and there, you know, if I would have really gotten into it, it turned out there was a way that I could have found the right people and borrowed labs and done it. Yeah. Um, but I didn't. And uh, but it was in the back of my mind for a long time. And about ten years later, uh, Frank DeFreitas on the East Coast um, published uh, an account of using a laser pointer to make a hologram. Oh, just like a handheld. Yeah, and uh, so it started me down a road of investigation of of small lasers and the problems with holography and how to overcome them. Hmm. So I ended up doing a bunch of hobby laser design, but in order, it's really difficult to the actually making a hologram. You have to be so still. You have to hold the, all of the optics, which is a table about the sheet of plywood, mm -hmm. as big as a sheet of plywood, stable within a tenth of a wavelength of light for the entire exposure time, which can be hours. So building the table and all the optics mounts and everything is a huge amount of effort. Okay, it's already starting to go over my head. Uh, how does a laser... Well, how is a hologram made? Okay. I, so, I'm so the, a, the, the layman's because I, I am. The, the layman's explanation yeah, is imagine simple... perfectly still pond. Yeah. And you take two rocks and you throw them in the water at the same time. Mm -hmm. And rings cir circulate out from the two rocks. I can envision that. Okay, right where the rings cross, there's these little lumps that look like they stay stationary, even yes. though the rings are moving by. Yes. Those are called standing waves. Yes. Now, we deal with standing waves in lots of industries. In the radio broadcasting world, if you have two antennas broadcasting the same signal, mm -hmm. you'll get dead pockets called standing waves oh. where somebody can't get reception. All right. In holography, you put a film in the standing waves that you've made from two light beams and record the pattern. One of the set of standing waves is perfectly pure, perfectly spherical. The other set of standing waves is coming from the object. And it turns out that if you replace one of the beams, the other one is created. So you replace the perfectly spherical one with a light bulb, yeah. and the object is created. Wow. If you replace it with the object, the perfectly spherical wave is created. <laughs> Lauren, are you taking notes here? <laughs> Lauren's already building a, a table right now. He's making a hologram <laughs> as we speak. He's picking this up so quickly. Well, and now it's become so much fun because we can do these little laser pointers. Yeah. I, can make, I can teach fourth graders to make holograms in a coffee can full of sand with what? a laser pointer really? for less than $20. And, and you do that? Do you go to I, schools? I, and I do haven't this? done it to schools, but I, I have taken neighborhood kids and said, okay, <laughs> let's see if we can do this. <laughs> wow, that must thrill them. It, it, it's really fun. We, we have a lot of fun with it. When my, uh, my lab hasn't been set up in about 10 years, so I'm just putting it back together again. Right. I used to just, neighborhood kids would walk by and I'd give them little pieces of film. Hey, you know, here, take, take this and play with it. And so they'd have these little... Uh, Two and a half inch by two and a half inch holograms that they play with until the the emulsion wore off the back. And, oh, is that it? And and then they come by. Hey, do you have another hologram? Oh, let me see what I've got. <laughs> and you brought something here today. You know, I did. I brought this hologram I made down in San Diego uh, on, in a friend's lab and uh, triple take holographics. So uh, look here. We laminated a a piece of oh, blue glass onto the back of it. Yeah. So what? Okay, this is beautiful. By the way, I'm going to try to describe. There's there's a blue. Glass, as you mentioned, and it it's, kind of looks like a seascape, the way it's, uh, I don't know, we call this frosted, or it looks it, like it, kind it, of It's a piece waves. of glass you would use for stained glass. Yes. And then you turn it around. You don't see anything on that side. You turn it around, and there, there's a mermaid who looks like she's popping right out of the glass, and she's contemplating, uh, is that an oyster shell? She's in some coral. 
Yeah, yeah, it was a, a little uh, a ceramic object. So one of the problems with holography is you can't change the scale. So if you have a big object, you need a big piece of film. Okay. So that object was exactly that size. Oh, I see. I just was kind of, I really needed to test the technology they were using mm-hmm. on their equipment. And that object fit the plate and just kind of, uh, once we saw the object and how the hologram came out, Joy uh, said, well, let's put some blue glass on the back. It'll make it look m- more like an ocean. Yeah. The l- mermaid looks like she's in her environment. That is amazing. I mean, that's just astounding to me that you can make that. You know, it, it's been fun. And, and, you know, I didn't know how to do it. And, and I was trying to ask questions, but there's so few people in the world that actually do it. It was really hard to find people. So I ended up building a forum for holographers, holographyforum.org, and managed it for 10 years. Mm-hmm. And it was the only place where you could post, say, I'm having a problem with X, Y, or Z. And within minutes, some famous holographer would go, oh, you know what you're doing? That happened to me 25 years ago. You're doing oh, this, yeah. and this is how you fix it. Isn't that amazing, the internet, just connecting folks like that? And yeah, and it was about 180 of us, and, and uh, everybody check it every day. It was really exciting and vibrant, and it was really a lot of fun. Again, and, a creator, creating a community. That's very cool. And, and now, yeah, now it's run, uh, a, a, guy, a college professor runs it now. I, I, I had to divest myself from it because it was so time-consuming. I was spending two or three hours a day uh, after everybody would go to sleep in the house, I'd, I'd work uh, on the forum. And, well, you're busy making beer now. Yeah, and so I, I about six or seven years ago, I retired from the holography forum. I still log in once in a while and check. But, See what's happening. But I don't post every day anymore. And Do you create holograms anymore? You know, my, like I said, my lab is oh, been in right. storage, said, yeah, but uh, I, I'm just trying to pull it out of storage right now. Cool. I'll look forward to seeing and seeing maybe how you combine the uh, the beer, the brewing, the... Yeah, holograms, the, I can imagine. The new lab will be uh, able to do 8x10 holograms, so I'm excited about that. Wow. So the 4x5 was as big as I could do in the past. Do your headshot. And, and well, <laughs> you know, you have to hold things still within a tenth of a wavelength of light. Oof. So uh, uh, your, your skin is actually expanding and contracting as your heart beats, mm-hmm. and it erases the hologram. Just so that holo- minute of a movement. Yeah, holographic portraiture um, is done with pulse lasers, which is a $100,000... Uh, adventure of building your own laser. Oh my gosh. Okay. Well, maybe down the road sometime. <laughs> Let's talk about beer. How did you find your way into the world of beer? Well, you know, all that, of this. I, yeah. I, uh, I, I was a customer at Downtown Joe's, and and I've always liked beer, and and was had drank a lot of German beers and a lot of British beers. Was never really interested in American beers. And Harry O'Shortles closed. And what, what was it? It was because the. The, the beers you had had have been kind of these American laggers, as they call them, these big mass-produced, was it not the craft brewing well, type? I, I don't uh, encourage people to drink underage, but uh, so when I That's was 15, <laughs> we used to t- carry kegs down to the beach, uh-huh. and you were really cool if you brought a keg of Heineken. Oh, I see. So you'd see these kegs of Heineken around, and I liked them better than the kegs of Miller. Mm-hmm. And so when I moved to San Francisco, I had a full beard and 19, and nobody ever carded me. And there was a little fine wine, fine beer shop. So I didn't want to try any of the normal ones. I wanted to try the other things and found Spot and Optimator. Ended up really liking Spot and Optimator and drank it for a while. And then when I moved to Berkeley, you know, finally of age, um, <laughs> but still did the same thing. would buy one bottle of beer and drink it. And, yeah, see what it was all and, about. And I found uh, Samuel Smith's, which were all the ales, and got really mm. interested in ales. So when I moved up to Napa uh, in 88, I uh, found Harry O'Shortles, and they had Spot and Optimator on tap, so I'd go in, have a pint after work, and go home. 
when they when Harry O'Shortles closed, Downtown Joe's was just coming together. Mm-hmm. So uh, all of the guys that were at O'Shortles moved to Downtown Joe's, and they didn't really have something like Spot and Optimator to drink. So kind of fished through their flavors for a while and discovered an ale that I really liked. I kind of hung out there on and off. Like I'd be there every night for a pint for six months, and then I wouldn't go for six months. And and remind me, when they opened, were they they were brewing from the beginning, right? It was Yeah, a, it was it was originally opened as Willits Brewing. And Willits, Joe, and that's Joe what bought it, was, it right. when Chuck Anarchy ran into some legal okay. troubles. Okay. But I didn't really know anything about making beer. Didn't really crossed my mind to want to make beer and I met a girl there that I dated briefly mm-hmm. and she had a degree in fermentation science from Davis ah, that's and, she handy. A, and she had a bunch of homebrewing equipment that she wasn't <laughs> using. So I made a few batches of beer there and needed some ingredients one day and I was working as a luthier in Concord and I, I went to beer, beer and more beer down there. And I said, here, you know, why don't you try one of my beers and see what you think? Well, it was my third batch of beer. Well, they absolutely loved it. They're like, wow, this is just one of the best IPAs. It's got this. It's got that. It's got this. And I said, well, you know, the big issue is I don't have control over my fermentation temperatures. There's all these issues I want to solve. This this is my plan. I'm going to solve it like this. I'm going to solve it like this. And they said, you know. How'd you like to work for us for before you go to your your Luthery job? Why don't you just come over here for four hours, three days a week? I said, ah, you know, I could, I could probably fit that in. Cool. You know, so I was working there four hours, being a luthier for six to eight hours, mm-hmm. and then going to theater at night. Oh, man. And so it just made really long days, but it was really fun. We were building and designing things, and, and I ended up spending about six months making the first peltier-cooled fermentation technology. What so is that? Solid-state refrigeration. And some, we, in homebrewing, you make such small volumes that big refrigeration units were expensive. Mm-hmm. And everybody said that Peltier wouldn't scale up to that size. And I'm stubborn. I don't like it when people tell me I can't do something. And you are obviously someone who can create things. And, and, and this company was willing to pay me to sit there and figure it out. <laughs> so it's like, wow, this is a win-win. Yeah. And I ended up designing 180 products for them in the course of about five years, five or six years. Wow. Of and we really, I wanted everything automated. I wanted to run like a normal brewery. I wanted temperature control to be automated. And, and, bef- and before me in home brewing, um, you just put a thermometer in things and kind of adjusted the flame until it was right. I mean, continue. I, th- I think you, you do a radio show too, so you're looking at the clock also like, we've got to take a break. But let's, I, I want to finish <laughs> this. I don't want to totally interrupt you right in the middle of this, but I can see you as you're the radio host as well. You're, you're conscious of the clock. But let's finish up. Um, we well, you know, and, and so it, it turned out it'd be something really fun, but to get more ideas, I asked the brewer at downtown Joe's Lance was brewing at downtown Joe's. Mm-hmm. I said, Hey Lance, you know, what do you guys do here? And did that for about three months. I was chit chatting with them. Uh, uh, they, they were way educated in yeast and yeast biology, which I didn't have much of a biology background. So I was really working hard, understanding the Krebs cycle and mm-hmm. understanding where it falls apart and. And, and what off flavors get created and all of those things. And they had this knowledge locked in their minds that they weren't talking about because oh, wow. they weren't in school anymore. Yeah. And, and so I'd bug them for questions. And finally, Brian Hunt, who now owns Moonlight Brewing, was, was still there. And he says, you know, if you're going to ask me all these questions and make me go back to my textbooks, you're going to have to shovel out the mash tun. Uh-huh. And, and so I started doing just free labor <laughs> to get my questions answered. Barter is great. And it turned into a job. That's fantastic. All right, we're going to hear more about your life as a brewer, maybe taste a little something, and we'll talk about your radio show that comes on after this show uh, in just a few moments. We'll be back with more of Judd's Napa Valley Show right after these messages. Judd's Napa Valley Show. Every episode, a veritable cornucopia of finkel fun. 
Here's a look at your Napa Valley News, courtesy of the Napa Valley Register. There is no Napa Valley News. I'm Lauren Mole, filling in for Sharpie. Now back to Judd's Napa Valley Show. You are one astute cat, man. Thank you. No news is good news, our guest here said. Do you want to introduce our guest again, Lauren? He's with us on today, an hour early, from downtown Joe's. It's Colin Kaminsky. Beer is good. Beer is good. Beer is good. <laughs> Let's that, go. <laughs> Let's go. That's right. Colin Kaminsky, you are the head brewer, brewmaster, master brewer. I'm just calling you everything. At downtown Joe's here in Napa and the host of the show that comes on right after my show, the uh, Napa Valley on Tap. You know what? And actually, we're going to rebrand it today, which we're oh, excited about. What are we're we going to be it? Beer Nuts. Beer, <laughs> that's so much better. <laughs> I love that. I like a little humor in there. Well, talk is cheap, man. We've been talking, and it's great. I love hearing your story, but let's get down to it. You have with you a big, what do you call it? That is a, uh, it, it's a flagon. A, a not, growler is, is a more traditional U.S. term. Is that a growler? That, that's a growler. It's, this oh, okay. is a insulated stainless growler. It looks like a big so thermos. It, it okay. is, um, but it's growler size. Great. And... Um, and I've got good news and bad news about growlers. Yeah. We are no longer selling growlers at Downtown Joe's. You're not? No. That's, I'm assuming that's the bad news, because that that's, sounds yeah, bad to me. Yeah, the good news is I did was able to get one out of the building. Oh, okay. <laughs> what's, uh, what's going on that you're not doing growlers? Just... You know, the, the way Santa Rosa has interpret, interpreted the Type 75 license has changed since we got ours. Hmm. In the beginning, they said, you're a beer manufacturer, you can sell growlers. Now they're telling us that um, a Type 75 can't sell growlers. So, so is that going to affect all the breweries around here? All the type 75. So if you have liquor, yeah. Um, if you have liquor as part of your license, then you're not allowed to do it. Okay. All right. You're pouring out something that looks um, delicious. This is tantric IPA. Oh, I'm only doing two. Lauren, none for you? No, because I have to drive home today. Very responsible. I'm going to be calling a car service here if I finish this. So I'm only pouring half pints. Okay, that's fine. <laughs> And yeah, it's time. I mean, I ate breakfast. So it, it's noon in London, right? It must be at <laughs> least. This is great. So this is, um, you say tantric? This is tantric IPA. This is the first recipe I made when I got to Downtown Joe's. So when oh, this I got is to, it. This is your original when, signature? Yeah, when I got to Downtown Joe's, there was no IPA on tap regularly. Mm-hmm. I thought IPAs were going to be an emerging style. Uh, so, you and, right. I, and, and I liked drinking IPAs. So I formulated this recipe, and it's, it's kind of a blend between the British styles and the American styles. I didn't want it to be over-the-top hot bomb, but I did want it to be nice and hoppy. Uh, and, but I still wanted like a, a biscuity, uh, toffee kind of sweetness. Okay. I haven't tasted it yet because I want you to take me through it. It's got a beautiful color. It's kind of, what would you call this? Sort of a umber, golden. Honey. Honeyish, kind of dark honey, beautiful. Nice bit of foam, the head on top. Now, as a winemaker, I'm going to approach this how I know how to taste wine. So Absolutely. why don't you teach me how to taste beer here? Well, the first thing you do, you, you've got the order right. So the first thing you do is evaluate the uh, look mm-hmm. of it, the, the color, the head retention, the look. The next thing you would do is evaluate the aromas. Which I did. It's lovely. It's got a little floral, some floral notes to it, some crisp, kind of to me, almost seems like a crisp fruit, apple kind of delightful. Probably and some biscuity. S- you mentioned biscuit. Maybe yeah. that's a power of suggestion, but I could... Citrus, probably. Oh, for sure. That's probably the crisp green apple citrus. Sure. Uh-huh. Indeed. <laughs> Indeed. Well, I've been, I've, I have a lemon tree. I've been getting a lot of lemons off that, so I can pick up a little of that as well. Yeah, yeah lemon, uh, grapefruit, maybe. Um, uh, one of the hops I, th- I think is pretty, normally pretty grapefruity. Okay. Then the next thing you would do is you would taste it. 
Uh, drinking beer okay. is different than drinking wine because a huge amount of the flavor is on the back of your palate. Mm-hmm. So if you spit beer out, you actually don't get the full effect of the beer and you can't properly taste it. So you got to swallow it. So, so or not, gargle it. Not, not only is it, it better for us to uh, finish the beer, uh, it turns out it's the only proper way to taste. Okay, here we go. <laughs> Should I be slurping it like wine? You know, I don't, I don't personally, and I don't wash it around my mouth, but I do fill my mouth up. I like to, if I'm doing a proper taste, I like to drink 100 milliliters, which is a fairly large swallow. Yeah. That's... About a third of a bottle, a normal <laughs> bottle of beer. Um, that, that fills my whole mouth. Um, and then I swallow it. And, and experiencing the aftertaste is a big part of, of tasting beer as well. So you, not only do you have the initial flavors like wine, but then you have this huge rainbow of flavors that on, on some beers can last minutes that mm. decay off the palate. And how that proceeds and advances is a big part of, of beer as well. Well, it's very nice. I like the, the hoppiness. As you said, it's not totally overblown. A bit more subtle than some of these punch-you-in-the-face IPAs I've had that seem to be out there these days. It's got some subtleties. I think the citrus aromatics follow through in the mouth as well. It's delicious. Tantric. How'd you come up with that name? It sounds <laughs> you know, provocative. That, that, well, that was quite the story, too. You, you know, you, everybody wants to use an Indian name, but if you put an Indian god on a beer, it's actually mm. a really big offense. Um, I would uh, imagine it must be. Yeah. So, um, I mean, it would be like, you know, making Jesus sake or something. You just right, wouldn't do no. it. And, and so I, I was very sensitive to that. I, I like world religion. Mm-hmm. And so I was very sensitive to that. And, but I wanted something that invoked um, uh, Indian thought. Um, and, you know, being in a bar, you kind of want to be a little risque as well. Sex sells. Uh, sex sells. And, and so I was thinking of names, thinking of names, thinking of names. And it was about one in the morning, had, had a, a few too many uh, beers. And I was sitting at the bar, and this really cute young girl bounces up to me and says, I've got the perfect name for your beer. I've got the perfect name for your beer. Yeah. Okay, Jennifer, what do you got for me? She says, Tantric IPA. And I looked at her, and we'd tried out about 100 different names. And I looked at her, and I said, you know, I think you do have the perfect name. That was really good. Yeah. <laughs> and has this been on tap ever since? Um, this this has been a, in continuity? A, yep. This has been uh, a permanent addition ever since. It went from our number nine selling beer out of nine beers mm-hmm. to being now our number three selling beer. So and what do you attribute that to? Our, um, the popularity in IPA, yeah. but also, you know, in, in when I started at Downtown Joe's, I'd never been responsible for a brewery, so I've gotten a lot better at my job too. I see, beer's um, gotten better. I, I hope so. Yeah. And and you know, uh, people come in and say, "Hey, you know, I don't want to be offensive, but the beer's gotten better." And you know, that's not offensive. That's a compliment. And you know, if I would have been perfect, then I would have made the change in one day. But I'm not. I just try <laughs> like everybody else. And well, how much creativity? are you allowed to have? I mean, I would imagine that there's, you know, the market drives some of what you have to make because the public wants their tantric IPA. So you're always going to make that. And then are you able to just kind of come up with some goofy ideas if you get one and make some batches and put it on? Huh? I am only held accountable financially. Hmm. Um, if tomorrow morning I were to walk in the door and say, Joe, you know, I'm bored making ales. We're going to do all sours, but it's yeah. not going to change your bottom line. He'd go, okay. Sounds like you made yourself a lot of work, but fine. <laughs> really? Okay, so you really have a lot of freedom. I do. In fact, uh, nobody's ever given me any recipe. None of management has ever said, oh, I really, really want you to do this. It's never happened. That's got to be a great feeling. Yeah, and so the recipes evolve too, which is mm-hmm. one of the nice things. Uh, you know, I, I, uh, I, like today, we're, uh, Jake's down there brewing for me right now, um, but we're making the wheat beer. Mm. And so the first thing I did this morning was taste a little tiny bit of wheat and say, oh, well, 
we changed this last time. I kind of like that change, so we're going to keep that change. Um, but we might try to shift it a little bit this direction. And I try to make the changes small enough that only I notice. And if I need to make a big change, I'll do it in five or six batches a little okay. bit at a time. So people usually don't notice that I'm evolving the recipes, but the recipes are evolving all the time. It's gradual. As, as ingredients change each year, you know, just like your grapes change. Well, ab- yeah, um, absolutely. All, all my ingredients change too, and so I have to evolve with the ingredients. And where, did the, where does your inspiration come from here? Where, what, let, me, let me phrase that a little differently. What about uh, the seasons? I want to talk about the seasons because I know that can inspire what you're making. And obviously certain, certain ingredients are available at different times of the year. And I hear about seasonal beers. Can you talk about the seasons you know, of beers? Se- seasonal beers are kind of a marketing ploy. Is that right? And, and I just, I, I'm, I'm really against adding things other than the four traditional ingredients. I don't even like adding wheat to beer. Uh-huh. Um, so you're not going to have a pumpkin spice ale coming up next month? or. Um, you know, there, there's actually a special tasting method for drinking uh, pumpkin beer. Mm-hmm. Um, you open the bottle and then throw it away. <laughs> 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 uh-huh. No, I really don't like those beers. I, I don't like adding fruit. I okay. do have a raspberry beer. I yeah. do have a wheat beer. Um, I do that because people do like them. Um, personally, I would follow Reinheitsgebot, which is a German purity law, and put mm-hmm. exactly four ingredients in and never vary that. So I, I've heard this Reinheitsgebot. Did I say that right? Yes. I've read about it um, some time ago. You want to explain what that is um, and how it works in Germany? In, in the 1500s in Germany um, was a really big beer revolution. And people were adding all sorts of things. Mugwort, um, hops were just starting to take over. And Germany finally said, look, if you're going to call it, made it a law. If you're going to call it beer, it can only have three ingredients. It can have water, it can have barley, and it can have hops. And it's not allowed to have anything else. That's it. Well, when Louis Pasteur came around, we realized that yeast was alive. And so the German purity law was modified to allow yeast. Mm. Um, uh, But... That is it. So when you have a, a Weizen, that's a wheat beer, but it can't be called a beer. It has to be called a Weizen or a Weiss or I a see. Wit. So is that what you call it at Downtown Joe's? No, I, I, we do the Lazy Summer American Wheat. The, the wheat beer I make is very American. Mm. Um, it Meaning re- what? It, it really is training wheels to get you from Bud Light into craft beer. Really? And, and that's fully designed to be exactly midway in between Budweiser and and craft beer. You know, my experience drinking beer was exactly the opposite. I didn't <laughs> grow up drinking beer. Not that I'd encourage underage drinking just like you, but, <laughs> you know, it was around. I'd always taste it. I never liked it because I think it was these beers I'd, I was talking about earlier that just, I mean, they weren't exciting. They weren't very flavorful. And in college, you know, you go to keggers and the beer was no good and I just, I wouldn't drink it. You know, I was like the sober guy because <laughs> I, I don't like to drink to get drunk. I like to drink to enjoy it. So, it wasn't until um, it was, and we had we had a brief talk about this, uh, Colin, you and I a bit ago. When we were told after we had our kid many years ago um, that drinking very hoppy beers is good for the lactation, for breastfeeding, yes. and whatnot. So my wife would find these very hoppy beers, and we would maybe split one. We're you know I'm not big drinkers, but uh, that's how I really started appreciating beer was on the other end of the scale, you know, the, the bitter, hoppy, big beers, and I really liked it. And now I find myself 
scaling back, like enjoying more the subtleties and, of a well-made Pilsner. And, and, and finding and those flavors now. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah. They hit you over the head to get used to them. Now you can explore the subtleties. And, exactly. And one of the things I've found, and you know, people say, oh, you know, before Louis Pasteur, beers were probably terrible and infected. One of the things I know about people, we're not any smarter now than we were 10,000 years ago. <laughs> we have more technology available to us. We're probably, our brains haven't genetically changed. So, yeah. so... A person who manufactured beverages 10,000 years ago very much likely could make something that was very delicious and very much understood what delicious was. Mm -hmm. The way they went about it was probably very different. But you probably were, and certainly we know there were 9,000-year-old brew pubs. 9,000-year-old brew pubs. Yeah, the oldest one we've excavated, 9,000 years old. Wow. And you would have been able to go in, sit at a bar. There would have been a big vat dug into the ground, lined with clay, they would have had varying lengths of ladles mm-hmm. to pull out beer for you. They would have put it in a cup, and you would have sat at a bar, had a good time, and it would have been bright, delicious, and refreshing. Really? Where would I have been? In Mesopotamia. Mesopotamia. And they were making bright, delicious, refreshing? I'm, I'm, qu- I'm quite certain of it. And when you travel around the world, what you'll find is like some styles that I used to hate. Saison. Never was a fan of Saison. No. Because I'd always had bad ones. And you go and have a good Saison where it's fresh next to the brewery, and suddenly it's bright and delicious, and you go, this is why these people drink it. Now I get it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, and I've learned that now about every style. Uh, it's really easy to ruin a style by being ham-handed. Yeah. And you've, these communities that have been brewing the same style for hundreds of years have these beautiful, bright, refreshing, delicious drinks. And Brian Hunt and I call it the delicious factor, Mm. where you get to the bottom of the pint, you didn't realize that you drank that much, and you go, wow, I need to have another one of these. (laughs) That's when you know a beer is delicious. That's a good sign. Do you ever bring back some of these, uh, try to recreate even some styles that you didn't like? You discover them somewhere else made well, and then do you ever try to recreate these? I kind of have, because uh, I, I love the internet and I've been involved in the internet so long, I, yeah. I kind of have a worldwide group of friends. Mm-hmm. I don't get to travel the world. I just don't have time or money. So, But I'm very lucky that I can call up a friend in Czechoslovakia who might make holograms. He might be a uh. solar astronomer, whatever. <laughs> All I'll these say, other things you're into. And I'll say, hey, could you pack this in a cooler and ship it to me? I'll pay shipping. Yeah. And instead of getting beer that was shipped warm through the Panama Canal, yeah. I can get beer that's three days from the grocery store, shipped in a cooler with ice packs from anywhere in the world. And that's how I try beer. Wonderful. It's got to be exciting. So what are you into right now? You know, in the last couple of years, I've been kind of just focusing on California beer, mostly because of our radio show. The radio show for me is a way to introduce people to breweries that they can drive to. Mm-hmm. And so I try to find beers that you could drive to, have lunch at, have a beer, and come back to Napa. And that's what I'm trying to educate Napa about, is all of the phenomenal beers that are within lunchtime driving distance from Napa. All right, well, Lauren here, uh, I know you got your wheels today, and I know you are a beer enjoyer. In fact, uh, one of the luau's at Trader Vic's that you've come to, I remember instead of a Mai Tai in your hand, you had a had a beer going on. So... If you're going to turn to Lauren right now and say it's a beautiful September day, maybe Lauren uh, has a few hours to kill. He's got the car. Where would you send him right now? To get out of Napa. I know Napa's got some nice spots, but let's let's get out of Napa for a moment. You know, one of, one of my uh, favorite breweries that's really blowing up big right now, mm-hmm. right next to the ballpark in San Francisco, 21st Amendment. Oh, 21st Amendment. Have you had their beer, Lauren? Never before. They do some nice work. I went to a beer dinner 
of theirs. A kitchen door used to do these beer pairing dinners, and they were, they had several of their different brews, and they were delicious. And and Sean O'Sullivan. Uh, Sean O'Sullivan, that's yeah, right. Yeah. Uh, uh, or Sean Sullivan. I don't think it's O'Sullivan. Oh. Sean, Sean Sullivan, fifty um, percent owner. Yeah. Was the brewmaster for a long time. Now ownership is so big, he's got a lot of brewers that work for him. Yeah, um, cool and guy. Great guy. Just one of the nicest guys. I one time I was sitting at a at a bar. We were having a beer together, and uh, a little bit heartbroken. And he's like, "Why are you so sad?" And I was explaining to what's going on, and and it was a you know a, one of the girls I wanted to date was kind of seeing another guy, yeah. and he's like, "You know, let's drive over there right now and throw an empty downtown Joe's keg through his windshield." <laughs> <laughs> you know, <Hey> now. <laughs> let's go right now, and you know, and of course so he did. was kidding, but oh. it was so funny. <laughs> but it was so funny that it you know lightened my heart and That's my good. mood, and he's just one of those guys. He's just yeah, a yeah. breath of fresh air. I remember he was very personal. Uh, Lauren, what's your style? Do you find yourself drinking a certain type of beer these days yeah i go with a course a course okay you like and, and which which course do you like the course light or the course banquet uh i like the course banquet yeah me the, too yeah, I, the, I, of the course products that's my favorite yeah the the regular kind yeah the yeah. gold can yeah yeah the course banquet i i love that beer is that yeah. kind of like Coors classic yeah yeah the original Coors. Yeah. Uh, you know yeah. before but in the late 70s they came out with all, all the light beers oh, i see which, well, which they had an enzyme to to break down the residual sugars is that how it works? Yeah. Yeah. Well, well, oh. gentlemen, I don't know if you know this, but I actually went to the Coors Factory in uh, in Golden, Colorado, ten years ago. You did. I did. What did you learn? Anything there? Did you? Uh, the process of making beer. Yeah. Very cool. From that Rocky Mountain water. Right. Yeah. Water's important. Water, water is. Someone, it is. someone, I think, even wrote a book about how important water is to beer making. Uh, you know, there, there is indeed uh, one book in the English language about water chemistry for brewers, and it was written by. Colin Kaminsky, this man right in front of us right here. It's available yep. at Amazon.com, and it's called Water. I don't have it written down in front of me because I left my notes, but it, let it, me see if I can remember. Water, a comprehensive guide for brewers? That's correct. Oh, my goodness. And, and John Palmer and I wrote it together. John Palmer's a famous homebrew author, mm-hmm. um, wrote one of the Bibles of homebrewing, and uh, the Brewers Association contacted us. We, we kind of knew who each other were, but we'd never met, and, and put us together, and we worked four years on it. Wow. Wow. So very cool. That would be very handy for probably all these brewing groups like Barf that we mentioned earlier. Uh, absolutely. Yeah. To learn about water. Is it available from you or just... Uh... No, just, uh, you know, uh, uh, Brewers Association makes me the most money. Mm-hmm. So if you order it directly from the publisher, um, I get slightly more commission than if you order it from Amazon. I see. Okay. Um, so what's uh, their website? Um, uh, or what do you I, look up? I, I think it's brewersassociation.org, but if you Google Brewers Association... It'll come up, and they have they have lots of books. They're doing a, a whole group of books on on ingredients for beers. Water is one of them. They've got a, a malt book. They've mm-hmm. got a wheat book. They've got they've got a hops book. What does one need to understand? I know you wrote a whole book about it, but you know, if someone said in thirty seconds, tell me why the water is so important. Um, beer styles have evolved around the world to match the water styles that were regional. Hmm. So one of the reasons why there's no great pilsners in Dublin is because the alkalinity of the water doesn't allow you to produce a great pilsner. Um, So they made dark beers that have, uh, dark malts have acids in them that naturally break down that alkalinity. The reason why pilsner beers come from Pilsen um, is because their water is so naturally soft. It's almost identical to Hetch Hetchy water. Mm. It's just so naturally soft that it makes these really light, delicious beers that are phenomenal. 
are there things, uh, processes that I could do? Say I'm a home brewer just trying to mess around and I want to make a Pilsner, but Absolutely. I don't have the right water. I can And that's what the book is tinker about. Tinker with it. The book is about understanding why you might need something, what you need, and how to get there. Gotcha. You know, I see you just about every week when you come in to do your show. I'm leaving the studio as you're coming in, so I've never had a chance to ask you this question. Colin Kamitsky, master brewer of downtown Joe's. Do you go nuts for donuts? <laughs> you know, every once in a while, you'll leave some donuts behind and I'll sneak one. <laughs> okay, well, this is now your box to choose from. Would you like a donut, sir? You know, I would love a donut. Let me see what you got. Okay, we've got, he's going for the chocolate rays. He did not go for the maple old-fashioned or the pink sprinkles. Okay, but that chocolate rays donut, you're nibbling on it right now. Which, very quickly, which of your own brews would you recommend to drink with that? With a donut? Or any brew. It doesn't um, have to be your own. What, I like you really hoppy beers with sweets. Okay. Well, you and, gotta... and, and I always have. And, and it's kind of in the p- beer and food pairing is really difficult. Hoppy beers with blue cheese and hoppy beers with sweets are my favorite. That's the way to go. Okay. Nice hoppy beer with that donut. And now it's time to play everyone's favorite party game here on Judd's Napa Valley Show. This is Badlands. All right. As Colin Kaminsky takes another swig of that tantric IPA, you're going to start thinking... Of some blanks to fill in. The first one I need is a noun. The Bolivian Navy. (laughs) Okay. Okay. We're going to go quickly here. We've been talking. I've been having fun, but we're going to shoot through this. Luckily, you're quick. A plural noun. Uh, Voters. Voters. All right. A year. Any year in history. 1532. Columbus sailed the ocean blue. Well, yeah, maybe <laughs> we could take you back to school, but that's okay. An adjective. Superfluous. Superfluous. I think I spelled that right. It doesn't matter. It's the radio. A- another plural noun. Um, bananas. Bananas. A noun. Singular. Spacecraft. Spacecraft. A number. Any number. Pi. Pi. Okay, pipe, sure. It's a little irrational of you, but okay. (laughs) How about a plural noun, finally? Plural, octopi. Octopi. What I did earlier is I I Googled you, and I came up (laughs) with some biographical information about you, Colin Kaminsky, that I found at uh, brewerspublications.com that was talking about your book, and uh, something from the NapaValleyRegister.com. Put them together. You've just rewritten it. Are you ready to go? Sure. Here it is. Colin Kaminsky discovered brewing while briefly dating the Bolivian Navy. <laughs> <laughs> that was a fun part of my life. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> Using one of his first three batches of homebrew, Kaminsky ap- applied and was hired at Beer Beer and More Voters, oops, <laughs> okay. strange, as a product designer. In 1532, he became the master brewer at Downtown Joe's <laughs> Brewery in Napa. He's been at this a while. Says Kaminsky, this is your quote, our beer customers are getting more superfluous palates, just like the wine consumers did in the last decade. It's very common to find bananas that pick their travel destination based on where the brewery is and actually travel from brewery to brewery. Okay. Downtown Joe's and the craft spacecraft industry as a whole are enjoying a resurgence, with sales growing at their fastest pace in a decade. At Downtown Joe's, sales have risen pie percent. Wow, not bad. <laughs> We're, this is your quote, we're very lucky that we're in a neighborhood that's growing. As the neighborhood grows, so do our octopi, he said. <laughs> Colin Kaminsky of Downtown Joe's, the master brewer, thank you very much for being with us. Thank you. This is Lauren Mole speaking for Judd's Napa Valley Show, a Gil Lamar production.
Chud's Napa Valley Show.